Well, hello and uh, welcome uh, to another episode of Pod of the Gaps, the podcast uh, where we uh, take uh, a look at some of the gaps in culture from a Christian perspective and think about how as Christians we can tackle some of the big questions and issues of our age, both in the culture and in the church. I am Andy Bannister, as always, at least I was last time, I still am. And I'm joined uh, by my intrepid co-host, uh, Aaron Edwards, <laughs> whose beard gets longer every time we record this show. Aaron, how are you doing? Good, thank you. I've never been called intrepid before, so that's a new one to add to my mantelpiece, which I'm, I'm glad. You know, if you can send me that in a certificate, Aaron yeah, I was trying to think co-host. Of, I was trying to think of adjectives. That really sum up. I think I did yeah. effervescent a while back. Yes. <laughs> That's true. Well, we'll have, uh, our listeners can write in to give you some some superlatives. You know, part of the part of the superlatives. That's right. Okay. If you yeah, have an adjective yeah. that you you know you've got lying around the cupboard, haven't used it for a while, polish it off, send it to us, and uh, we'll uh, put it to good use. Absolutely, yeah, it's good. Well, and I notice you're in a in a different space today. As I look, I am. Your... So, uh, well, this is temporary space. Uh, it's not my real space. But I have actually our big news. We have we have moved house. Yeah. Uh, um, Kind of thing so we uh have been in scotland for the last uh kind of six years and now moved a bit further down the country still heading so less up very much so but uh you know the work we're doing is expanding across the country um so i am now trying to do more of what we're doing not just in scotland but also in particularly the north of england a bit to the south where other christian ministries don't reach that makes it sound like you know is it heineken or carlsberg refreshing the parts that other other ministries don't. There we well, go. No, the Carlsberg wasn't that was probably the best lager in the world. So it'd be probably the best apologetics beer. ministry. In and the I can world. now see all the Baptists going, they're talking about beer. I thought they were Christians. <laughs> so anyway, right. so we are surrounded by um boxes and chaos and more boxes and more chaos. And Excellent. I spent that's just hours. all the lawsuits filed against you. And then four what? hours yesterday afternoon assembling IKEA furniture. Every time we move, IKEA furniture. So my my daughter had her <laughs> eyes set on this cabin bed, which is this clever sort of half bunk bed thing with a den underneath it. And it looked great in the shop, but I, it was a it's a four hour build. So uh, <laughs> right. I am suffering from a. Uh, from Alan Key fatigue today. Excellent. Yeah. I, I was actually doing. I, I was dealing with Alan Key fatigue actually because we uh, we've just finished Cliff Festival here. So um, yes, that's Cliff, kind of annual... you, yes, that sounds very exciting. What what is Cliff Festival? Cliff Festival is the annual event that Cliff College has run for the last hundred years or so. Um, it's a bit like Keswick, but it's within evangelical Methodism, and so we kind of gather people here and uh, have you know big worship time, different speakers coming in and seminars and fun stuff and whatever it's good but we were have a well there's a, a bit of a, it's a mix there's a mix of content across the board so then when i say it's good but obviously it's a you know it's, so, it's fairly um, broad so they put you on a they put you on some kind of panel did they that was very brave of them knowing your it was and that's got nothing to do with allen keys i mean i was but i was saying the allen key thing was me literally we, we were having to do a lot of you know manual labor beforehand we were sort of you know the that old it's almost like a monastic community would that not be a great name for a theologian or an apologist allen key you know, unlocking the truth by Alan Key. Uh, <laughs> that's you know. right. Yeah. <laughs> putting putting joints back together in the church or something. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. no, I was on a panel um, of very it's a very interesting one on um, how can the church live with contradictory convictions, which is interesting. Um, and so that was basically in the wake of um, that's a very live issue for Methodism because Methodism has specifically um, chosen a phrase to sort of go with. Or the culture of Methodism, since the same-sex marriage vote of living in contradiction, because they voted on two views, valid views, equally valid views of marriage. So you can be a conservative and believe marriage is between one man and one woman, but you can also be 
um, someone who maybe doesn't even think they're liberal, but I would say are, and uh, believes that marriage can be between someone, uh, two people of the same sex. And also that they, they can, you can believe in cohabitation, and that's okay, um, apparently. And you can all live together, even though you have different views of marriage and sexual morality. Um, but if you just say it's living in contradiction, then it just kind of provides this wonderful sounding umbrella. So the point was, how can we live with these contradictory convictions? And it was, that was sort of like the segue into the wider discussion of how do Christians disagree well, which kind of obviously is what we want to talk about uh, today. Uh, and I think that was, you know, that was the thing, really. I guess we could get into some of the issues relating to that. Yeah. Well, I guess at the risk of diving kind of right into the deep end, something we never we never do on on the show. I mean, I've I've come across kind of similar language before. I suppose about the first thing I'd want to think about for a few few minutes before we get into the the question of what are the implications of some of some of this is while it sounds very lively and and perhaps very very Methodist or very Anglican, you know, some of those big umbrella mm. you know sort of theology to say we can live with contradiction. And mm. um, first thing I want to tease out, Aaron, is I'm not sure it's actually. Possible. And the first thing straight away, if you if you sign up to the idea where well, we can live with contradictions, so in the case of the Methodist Church, if the idea is that conservatives and liberals can sign up and go, both our views of, of marriage are, are, are valid and whatever we live together. First thing that tells me is neither of you really have any conviction. Neither of you actually think this is important, because if you think something is important and has truth, then surely there are some things that follow. You know, if I go and see my doctor and my doctor, you know, di- prods around my stomach pains that I've reported and he said, oh, gosh, Andy, this is really, really serious. And he looks really grave. I'm like, oh, gosh, really? Yeah, very serious. Mm. What should I do, doctor? Well, actually, you know what? You could do this. You could do that. You could, do, you know, whatever. Pick whatever works for you. That tells me it ain't really serious. Because mm. if it was really serious, he'd be right, okay. Mm. There might be a couple of options, but he'd go, look, we need to deal with this, and this mm. is how we deal with it. So the very fact that you're willing to live with it yeah. tells me that you don't think it's important. Uh, so just to jump in there, it's quite okay. funny. So I've got another point to jump in. Just to go back to the Allen keys, I don't know why Alan this matters key. so much. You've started me off on Allen keys, and some people are listening to what even is an Allen key. Um, anyway, I think for US for US listeners, we just translate. It's a little hex bolt. It's a little kind of those sort of hexagonal nuts, you know, the L shaped key that yes. you stick in and you turn them. In uh, a often, knife. In, in often a, using self assembly furniture. Um, yes, that's right. For, I clearly IKEA furniture, but other other furniture brands are available. We were dis- dismantling and remantling. I don't know if that's the word. Remantling. That uh, should be worse tables um and chairs and, and around the college and bringing them from place to place it was quite funny because there was someone on the leading this manual team who was had a list of things that we had to do i wanted to get this many tables and they have to be of this kind of size these are all the same size and everyone's like yep they're the same size and someone's like no this one it definitely isn't it's like about 20 centimeters short so is that one on your list or not and then there's regularly these moments throughout the day where it was impossible not to make the joke well I mean, to you, it might seem like it's not the same size, but to me, it is the same size. We just live in contradiction, guys. Come on. Yes, and I'm it's not just sure. funny, when you, when you bring the rhetoric into like yeah. average, everyday practical life, it is completely crazy. But apparently, when you bring it to theology, it's completely fine. Well, again, it maybe tells you that you don't take theology seriously. And the second thing I want to throw in, and I'd love to get your take on, on this, Aaron, too, is that I think one of the things that I've been increasingly struck by um, is that actually... When you when you start redefining, if you if we take marriage as an example, when you redefine marriage, you know, it's often sort of said, well, what's the problem with you know uh, you know opening up marriage so that people of same yes. sex can get married? Actually, when you redefine marriage that way, you don't just redefine it for those who are same sex; you redefine it for for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I can't immediately think of a better analogy, but if you were to say, look, you know, traditionally we've said that you know in the Olympics, 
silver, gold, and bronze of people who come, you know, the first three places in, in, in the race. If we somebody, some bright spark goes, well, in order of being the inc- more inclusive, actually, you know, anybody whose name begins with B, just picking out for Bannister, <laughs> unlucky Mr. Edwards, gets to stand on the medal podium. Well, obviously, the, those who are already there are going to complain. They go, hang on, we've worked really hard uh, mm. for our Olympic medal. And if I was to go, oh, what are you complaining about? My, my also getting a medal doesn't affect you. Well, actually, it does because you've yeah. redefined it for everybody. An Olympic medal is no longer says what it mm. you know says on the tin. Mm. And if you, if you know, those of us who take the Bible seriously believe that marriage is something that God has set up, and at the heart of it is sexual difference, male and female, and committed mm. covenant relationship. If you then say, well, actually, over here, we're going to allow that word to apply to anything and everything. Uh, people of the same sex, people of, you know, potentially polygamy, mm. you know, any other ways we might choose to extend. In other words, we've trained, we've changed marriage from being that sacred covenant relationship, uniting together two sexes to actually being a social contract, mm. which we could define any other way. Well, that actually redefines marriage for everybody. Mm. And mm. so that's one of my concerns with the co- living in contradiction. Yeah. That actually, it's not just an idea that you hold, that mm. idea affects every affects yeah. everybody actually absolutely no it's a really good point i, I think well. that i think that uh, the devaluing of marriage by the introduction of same-sex marriage is the most significant mm. problem here um, because that and that's even where you know where christians haven't bothered to uh haven't really had the political theology or the political awareness to say you know i need to fight for this fight for marriage because in some for many evangelical christians that that became a a difficult thing to hold because it's like well do i really care what the world does do i care what society says about this or that they can call something what they like and get on with it as they wish and, I, and we just focus on the church well it's interesting that it does get into the church in the end so if you leave stuff if you leave the world to its own devices and just say i'll just focus on the church only now i do believe our primary um yeah it's our it's our we are the body of Christ as the church. And we do, that is our, you know, we want to make the church glorious. We are the glorious bride of Christ. And that is, you know, we don't want to be focusing only on political issues and social issues, but I do think we, you can't ignore them. You ignore them at your peril. They'll come in through the back door, through the cat flap or, or any other kind of open window. Yeah. Um, especially the more the church has tried to be apologetic to the culture and evangelize the culture in such a way where we just become relational and pally with the world that you don't be surprised that the kind of attitudes of the world rub off on you, which is what, what's exactly what's happened in Methodism. It's become immoral, really, to think that two people can't get married, even if technically they allow the view of the conservative. And, and there's loads of really friendly, you know, gay people who are married in in the domination like that, who who I say, I hey, don't worry, I don't mind you having that view. But in reality, I think in another generation that will change because in in our culture, in the world, it's already immoral to think a gay person can't get married um, under your belief. Even if you say yeah. but that's my religious belief, they don't. You know, it's, you know, that's an immoral belief. Now, it might have been immoral to actually marry someone of the same sex once upon a time, and now it's immoral to not believe that they can um, they can yeah. do so. And that's the big shift that we need to you know, I should have been better prepared for and haven't been. And I think, you know, the fact that cohabitations come in here is another, again, that is something that's come from the world that's come into the church and it's a way of just devaluing marriage. So I actually think exactly, as you say, Andy, many have made this point and it's important. Polyamory is re- is so, so close around the corner. It's just waiting around the corner. There's nothing you would be able to do to stop polyamory coming in. There's no reason why monogamous marriage between one person and one person is the, should be the norm. And eventually that attack on the family that we've seen time and time again is going to be complete. So we've had the LGBT agenda trying to say we want marriage because we want to feel we're accepted 
um, and normal, as it were, inverted commas, because we felt abnormal. So we want to be able to be married like normal heterosexual couples. But um, really, I think it's almost like a takeover of marriage. So it's just what you were saying, that it devalues the very thing. And that's just, I know how offensive that will sound to any gay person or same-sex attracted person listening to this, but it's just true. Like they, if we believe marriage is between one man and one woman, that's how God has designed it. You can't come and make it something else, call it something else, and then expect it to be the same thing. I mean, that's just obvious. Well, yeah, the analogy I, I've, I've sometimes kind of use and again I, I think an analogy because i'm a simple thinker and not not a you know uh, an airy hairy theologian oh yes yeah, so you've only got a phd in the quranic um, studies, quranic studies. exactly um the analogy I've, i i found helpful sometimes I, I think to think about is yeah i think we know elsewhere that if you change the component ingredients you don't end up with the same thing and i know it's all analogies have their weakness but you know if you want to create a water molecule you take two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen and sort of bang them together and every chemist listening is going to go truth bang them together but you you take them and uh, you end up with a with a molecule of water h2a but you can't take the oxygen and substitute it for nitrogen or well i can have four hydrogen atoms and a carbon atom and bang those together and assume we're going to you're going to get something different and i think i think there's a there's an extent to which that's that's true of, of marriage that God, as you say, has designed it a particular way. I think there's also, of course, something much bigger going on in, in scripture. We've talked about, I think, this book before, but my friend Ed Shaw, who's part of Living Out, which is a wonderful organization doing some great work in this whole area. You know, Ed's book, Purposeful Sexuality, is really helpful because it's got some fantastic discussion in that book of what marriage actually is. And, and Ed says the mistake that's so often missed in this conversation is when people, you know, liberals and conservatives talk past each other, we need to stop and ask, what is sex? for and the answer in in the bible absolutely that you know there's a number of things it does sure it binds together husband and wife it's for procreation it's for mutual pleasure that's all fine but those three miss the more important one that sexual intimacy is the biggest model that god one of the biggest models that god has given us in scripture for the love that god has you know for the church and that metaphor is all over uh, mm-hmm. the bible and certainly in the new Testament yeah. in terms of christ and the church so marriage is not just this sort of little human construct yeah. that we come up with um, marriage is actually almost built into the reality of creation mm. itself. Mm. And so it's something pretty severe, actually. Um, yeah. And that also, I think that it's so foundational. And again, I'm not a great believer in slippery slope arguments. But the reason slippery slope arguments are popular is there are slippery slopes. I think it's not, you mentioned the polyamory and the sort of, you know, cohabitation. I think there's no accident, Aaron, that once you start chipping away at this one, other things follow and we've seen that for example most recently the church of scotland you know country i used to live in has just again gone full woke and decided that you know marriage is social constructs and it will start you know marrying people of the of the same sex but at the same time they've also jumped heavily on board with the conversion therapy uh thing uh that we've done previous episode on and has actually been much you know politically there's been much criticized not just by christians but that's now put the church of scotland in this bizarre position where they are quite literally in favor of persecuting fellow Christians, if you happen to believe that, you know, it's a good idea to counsel and pray with somebody who wants help with their sexuality, um, the Church of Scotland will, you know, happily fling you to the dogs. Mm. And as one of my friends said, that now puts the Church of Scotland, it aligns it with things like the Russian Orthodox Church that has Mm. been, you know, it's not always, but historically has been, you know, pretty terrible at sort of persecuting Mm. kind of fellow Christians. Mm. So, um, but that's the same slide, that once Mm. you... Once you lose the centrality of scripture and once you start redefining things, the next thing goes, the next thing goes. And I do think it ends up with the Lordship of Christ. And we're going to talk about that more 
Yeah, like, yeah. I think that's where it ends oh, up because yeah. because ultimately it all flows from there. If you yeah. believe that Christ is is Lord, right? Then no matter how difficult you find some of the other things, and I appreciate if you're same sex attracted, it can be tough wrestling with sexuality. And you know, I don't want to give the impression that you and I think, oh, it's all rainbows and unicorns and, mm. and easy. But if you believe that Christ is Lord, you can build on that foundation and go, okay, this may be difficult, but I'm still going to work it through because he is Lord. Yeah. And I yeah. want to live that out. Absolutely. Um, yeah, there's so much so that, I mean, I, I guess we, we may be at risk of um, making the whole uh, discussion about sexuality, which obviously some accuse evangelicals historically of, of only honing down on uh, that issue. But just to say a couple more things on <laughs> Just to completely contradict myself, because we can live in contradictions, so it's fine. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I can extend the discussion of homosexuality just a little bit further, and we can then get into some of the other issues of, of agreement. But only, and I say that because, you know, like Luther said, that there are certain issues that you need to defend because they're the ones that are under attack. And sometimes you can, and I've been writing on my blog a fair bit recently about this, um, uh, the, the idea that you... We like to defend the things that are, don't need to be defended because it makes us look orthodox in a certain way. But like, no one cares about it. You need to defend the things that are actually under attack. That's the parts of the castle, if you want to lose, use that analogy. And it's not an inappropriate, entirely inappropriate. It can be an appropriate analogy uh, for the church. But there are many wonderful hymns uh, which speak of um, the kingdom of God in those terms. And I think we we do want to um, yeah think of where, where we're under attack. And sexuality... Um, moral ethics like that are absolutely central to that so we do need to think about it so and when we're talking about christians agreeing and disagreeing on on this panel i was on um mm. it i was next to a uh, a guy who's been married to someone of the same sex for a long time and i've chatted to him over over a number of years and get on really well he is substantively evangelical uh in his beliefs in terms of justification by faith um we all sinners in need of redemption we should be evangelizing so previously people who'd be married to some of the same sex wouldn't be talking like that they'd normally have a set of doctrinal commitments which were not evangelical this new thing is we have a lot of people who are evangelical in their um in loads of respects but not in this respect so i still would see him as a liberal he wouldn't see himself as liberal I'd say you absolutely are a liberal because you're married to someone of the same sex. That just there's a line you've crossed a long time ago about around the authority of scripture that has to have t- taken place, which means you're not really actually evangelical as, as I'd understand it. But he's evangelistic, missional, um, and even yeah, cares about talking about sin. So I said, okay, well, if that's the case, um, you go to a pride event, and he does, because he leads a big evangelistic team. Um, would, would I be welcome on your team? You know, you're going to Pride events saying this is what authentic evangelism looks like in the 21st century, uh, telling everyone they're not, God isn't homophobic, that, you know, God accepts everyone regardless of their sin, regardless of who they are. I'd say I might sound quite similar because I'd say God does accept you regardless of who you are and what you've done. And we still believe in that element of the evangelical gospel, but, but we both even believe repentance matters. So we're getting to real gospel issues here. I would be saying I have a, have a set of things that need to be repented of, according to what I believe God's word says. You would say that the thing that I'm saying needs to be repented of doesn't need to be repented of. And God is happy with it, smiling down upon it. As long as, you know, it's not promiscuous, as long as you're in a committed lifelong ish relationship, then all is well. And God is happy. If I'm on your team, you're going to have people complaining to you about this bigot on your team. 
who is telling people they have to repent of the thing that you think God is what is it loves. And I, and I think, you know, that there's no way around that issue. We're going to talk about partnering with people of different convictions. We mm. have to ra- grapple with the real issues that actually affect things we do mm. as the church together, because the church is a mission is, is a, a mission organization as it were, or a mission mm. organism. We, the church exists for mission in this world as a witness to the world, to, to enjoy fellowship with God and each other and to be on mission here. That's why we're here. And so if we're not going to be able to work together in mission, that's going to be really difficult. It's a challenge, isn't it? Because to go, I I agree with you wholeheartedly, but I would tell a sort of story from a slightly different perspective, because I think it would be good to to tease into one of the ideas we want to, uh, lean into one of the ideas we want to tease out in this episode, which is, you know, when should should Christians Mm. split? The New Testament says a lot about unity, but it also says a lot about when actually, you know, you can't can't be in, in fellowship. Yeah. But another example that uh, at the other end of the scale that I really gave me pause for thought is when I was in Canada back in the 2010 to 2016, uh, we were part of a consortium of churches and ministries that set up university missions on several of the Canadian campuses. University missions, mission weeks are quite common here in the UK. That time in Canada, they weren't happening. So it was really exciting to be part of a, a, you know teams getting that going. What was interesting on several of the campuses we worked on the uh, the Catholics ended up being involved, the Newman centers. Hmm. Um, and they were amazing. They did great work. It was great to have them on the team. But one of the things we also had to think through is, okay, we've got conservative evangelicals um, of all flavors. Um, we've got a few sort of hangers on over here. We've got our Catholic friends who are very missional, but believe some foundation in different things. How do we work together? And actually, we figured out ways of, of doing it, actually, yeah. um, that worked quite well. But what was interesting was we didn't sit there and use crazy phrases like, uh, or just a living contradiction. We didn't all pretend to you'd be united around around things. There was an agreement about the things yeah. we would talk about mm. on on campus, and there was an agreement that outside of that, the different groups were able to do their own thing. Yeah. Um, and I think that, to me, actually has more integrity to it than trying to sort of paper it over with contradiction. I almost wonder yeah. whether a position of greater integrity goes there. What you know, those you know Christians like your friends who want to uh, you know redefine marriage and so forth fantastic you know good luck to them they want to go and break away and start a new church mm. it'd be important to have some unity be important to perhaps pray together important to find ways of you know not fighting with one another but also without pretending that we believe the same the same mm. thing and so it's the challenge of how you operate on that spectrum mm. i think is that is 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 the question is yeah. the question absolutely uh for me i think though you've put your finger on one thing that's crucial here and i think i'm going to be careful because I know there will be exceptions that prove this rule, but I do think that the being willing to name, being willing to name sin for what it is, is 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 a common denominator in lots of where problems yeah. begin. I'm not saying that covers it all because, as I say, I've come across folks like your friend who outwardly will even use that language. Mm. That is a great starting point, I think, to go: Are people actually willing to to address the sin in the room? We talked about this on the abortion episode in the previous episode. That I think for the gospel to have integrity we need to be willing to name sin for what it is. Um, You don't stop there. Then you talk about the grace and repentance. But if you skip Mm. the sin part. um, So for me, what's wrong with the way that you describe your friend approaching the pride thing is that I think Christians need to be there. I Mm. think we need to be willing to actually have things thrown at us if necessary, because Jesus did. I think we need to be willing to talk about the fact that there is sexual brokenness across the human condition, Mm. but all of us bring our sexual brokenness to Jesus and then that's followed with repentance, but welcome. There is a radical welcome. Mm. Um, you know, Luke 15, mm. when, the, when the prodigal son gets home covered yeah. in pig crap, 
you know, there's that embrace that costs the father quite a lot of dignity. But I'm assuming the father didn't then go, come to the family dinner, complete with your pig-encrusted rubbish. Mm-hmm. There, ha- there was a kind of, okay, you've messed mm-hmm. up. We're going to deal with this. We're going to clean you up. And then at my expense, of course, the father says. And that's, yeah, no, and, and it requires repentance, doesn't it? It requires coming to terms and making that metanoia term, that, that turning away from what you were doing and realizing. So coming to your senses, as you say, you know. Oh, well, <laughs> by the way, I'll pick up, we may have American listeners who uh, may write in about your use of the word CRAP there, Andy. No, I, I well. In our I, culture, I, we don't, that doesn't tend to be as bad. But to well, it some, doesn't because like, we know where it comes from, of course, because Thomas Crapper, who invented the, the, the WC. So Yeah, that's right. So you can, you can, you can argue for the cultural argument, just, but just so the American listeners don't say, right, I'm dividing over this. I'm dividing. <laughs> we're dividing on Bannister's use of that word. No, you're right. I'm so going to set up a breakaway church as a result of this, or breakaway podcast. There we are. No, Pot, exactly. Pot of craps. <laughs> We've just lost 30% of our American <laughs> listenership. Doubled down. Doubled down, Doubled that's down. it. No, but that's right. So um, I, I think the welcome thing is interesting as well. And that just reminds me again, not to go back to the pride thing, but we're in pride month, so why not? Um, is it still month? I thought it was a year. It now. is a whole month. It is a whole month. And it's in, and they're internationally, you know, so our American listeners are having to deal with this as well. And there is something where questions have previously gone. I've previously gone, it doesn't really matter. Because it's a, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It, it matters to counteract homophobia, sure, um, but that's not what that's about. I don't know that's what Pride's really been about. Um, it's about the, the embrace and celebration of the identity, and really for Christians, it should be seen as a, an embrace of flagrant sin, um, going against God's authority and God's word and God's um, plan for human uh, life and sexuality and family and loads of things like that. They're trying to make a family-friendly, welcoming event. I had a recent debate with some a Pride organiser on Twitter, which went a few rounds. And uh, because he'd said, oh, this is a welcoming event, everyone's welcome to come. And I just said, are you genuinely non-facetious question? Am I welcome? Because I would come and, and want to share my view respectfully, but disagreeably. I'd want to be respectfully disagreeing with and what, Pride. what was the answer? The event. And the, and the event was basically, why would you want to come? You just told uh, me I was welcome. Am I welcome or am I not welcome? Why would someone want to come and share their view? Because my view is I think it's wrong. I'd love to come and explain that to you, not with an aggressive bullhorn and an A-board saying you're going to hell. I'd like to just come and do it respectfully. Could I do that if I was nice? I don't even say, why would you want to come and cause trouble? We wouldn't come to your church and say, well, we disagreed with you. And I said, I'd love you to come come to our church this Sunday and tell us where you disagree. We're absolutely fine. As long as you weren't massively disrupting the whole service, you'd be totally welcome. Come along, tell us why we're wrong. Come and have a coffee. Try and convert us. We want to try and convert you. Why didn't you try and convert us? Wouldn't have it. And then all of his pals jumped on and it became you know, a bit of a bloodbath. It's and a I was slight like, tangent, but, but, this- but, it, but it illustrates the a point, though. I, I remember, again, back in my... um. Early, early years in Toronto, meeting a fa- fascinating character. He was a, um, he was a gay Jewish, uh, sort of secular Jewish lawyer, I believe from British Columbia, actually. And he had received death threats wow. uh, from um, parts of his, um, parts of the LGBT community. I'll be very clear, parts of, mm-hmm. um, because he had come out, pardon the pun, very strongly against pride. Because his argument ran like this, he said, on the one hand, we in the gay community said we want to be taken seriously, we want to have marriage, we want to be welcomed at the table and treated like adults. On the other hand, we want the ability once a year uh, to, to, to strip naked, spray paint ourselves pink, stick a giant phallus on our head and march through the streets of Toronto. He said, 
those two things are incompatible. And he he was basically arguing that, that pride was just disgusting from a perspective of a gay man. Mm. And uh, he'd received death threats and had wow. police protection mm. for that, which is really, really interesting. He was one of the most really fascinating individual, mm. uh, actually. Yeah, and again, like, like we said before, you know, you're not... People happily turn on someone. It's all about identity and who you are, whether whether it's about race or about sexuality. But it's like if you're the wrong kind of gay person, the wrong kind of gay person, the wrong kind of kind of black person, you're, you're not included in that community. It's not as inclusive as it sounds. If you speak out against the supposed agenda, then you get in trouble. So that's often what we hear. So, so that come back, comes back really, I think, to the unity question because yes. Um, the ecumenical movement would be the phrase, the, the phrase that you know used theologically and, and across the church to talk about Christians trying to agree in, in terms of like the whole, across the whole church, the, the lower C Catholic Church, as it were. We're not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. When you talk about Catholicity, we talk about the full church. What is the full church, the body of Christ universally? Um, even though we have different local churches, different denominations, we do believe in a capital C church. So the ecumenical church is why we talk about the the councils of the early church as the ecumenical councils like Nicaea or Constantinople or Chalcedon. Um, those, those are binding in a sense. I mean, they're not really, if you're a good Protestant, you say, well, yes, I do agree with the creeds because I believe they are a faithful interpretation of scripture and a summation of scriptural teaching. So therefore, yes, we are creedal in our belief because we, we we unite with the churches around the world who believe in, in the same stuff. We believe in orthodoxy. Um, so an ecumenical conversation is to say, right, what 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 is the, you know, what, what do we agree on? What's our sort of baseline? I mean, that's a, a movement that was that has been going since the early 20th century, especially with the Edinburgh conference, I think it was on mission in 19, let's say, I think it was 1910. It was 1910. 1910 is, yeah. I think, correct. Yeah. Well done. Edinburgh Missiology Conference. And then that's kind of, you know, it fed into loads of other conferences in the 20th century, even perhaps Vatican II in the Roman Catholic Church or Lausanne, um, the one that John Stott and Billy Graham were involved in. And so I think there's all of these movements to try and say, we don't like disagreeing. We don't like you know christians carping at each other and biting at each other's heels and i see you know you see that on social media today and it is sad i say that as sad even as someone who probably is trying to say a lot i feel like strongly i need to say what's wrong with the church <laughs> abroad so i don't, i need to try and watch myself sometimes i'm not only saying what's wrong with the church at the same time i think it's something that needs to be said strongly at this time so you always need to deconstruct the church and, and try and say right what's going wrong what's what's wrong with our public witness at the same time as us saying right let's not just fight and do you know kind of bicker at each other because there are lots of new testament um verses which kind of call us to unity in that way you think of ephesians 4 especially paul's kind of calling us to that that unity we belong to and not to sort of um treat or even Philippians 2, for example, when he's, when he's pleading with Euodia and Syntyche um, not to uh, to agree with one another in the Lord and to join in the gospel partnership that he's mentioned earlier on in, in the letter and then, then talks about Christ's humility as the example. And maybe the most famous example would be John 17. Mm. Jesus is the, the kind of, you know, that wonderful prayer. He's speaking about his own relationship to the Father, saying, I want my people to be one like you and I are one. So in the same way Jesus is related to the Father in his unity, we as the church are supposed to be one. And, and I find, I was reading recently in um, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones's essay on evangelical unity, because he was a really controversial figure back in the day. I don't know if you, do you've read much Martin Lloyd-Jones, Andy? 
little bits over the years. Little, yeah. bit, little bits here and there. I mean, he he yeah. wrote a lot. He, he took about 10 years to get through Romans. So, you know, it would take a while to get into him. But he was a great preacher. And he was someone who, who would call, he was a significant figure in evangelicalism in the 60s, 70s. Um, and there was a really big debate um, that happened in 1966. Not just the England won the World Cup, which obviously is the most important thing that happened that year. But the most other thing that happened in history, actually. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, Americans are going, what is this World Cup? You have a World Series, which no one else pays attention to, but there we are. <laughs> um, but we, we lost more American listeners. If there were any still listening, they would now drive them away. Um, so, yeah, and, then, and this, there was a, a kind of discuss, a debate around whether evangelicals should stay in the Church of England, really. And Lloyd-Jones was of the opinion that, it, that they needed, you know, the evangelicals needed to come out from the established church because it wasn't doing them any good. They were just going to become overly comfortable with their stipend and manse and, um, and they're going to you know, put up with this kind of big tent liberalism that, that he saw as coming as part of the ecumenical movement. Because what happens in that is obviously liberals love to get involved in ecumenism because it means that doctrine... Uh, those distinctives of doctrine don't really matter. So then you get these phrases like doctrine divides, but Christ unites. Well, what Christ are we talking about? Do you have a doctrine of who Christ is? In which case you do believe in doctrine. You can't just say doctrine is the problem. Doctrine is, we always are doing doctrine. <laughs> we always talk about teaching or theology. It's just whether you're doing it well or badly, faithfully or unfaithfully. Um, and so he was said, John Stott, another famous evangelical, disagreed with Martin Lloyd-Jones at this, at this event because he was worried that all of the Anglican evangelicals would suddenly leave, mm. hand in their dog collars um, the next day because Lloyd-Jones was, was making such a powerful, rousing point. So it's an ongoing sort of tension. And you get these people called, you know, uh, uh, in it to win it Anglicans who are evangelicals who don't like everything that's going on in the Anglican church. But they feel that if they're there for long enough, they might have a faithful presence within the organization. They could actually bring it back to a place of, of you know, fruitfulness faithfulness. and faithfulness. Exactly. Um, and I had, I had a great, you know, I'll tell you, yeah, I could talk about it another time, but I had some times spent with some Anglican uh, uh, vicars recently as part of the uh, the Archbishop's Eleven, the uh, CV football team, which was fun. That's a bit of my other time. I love the image of the Archbishop actually playing football <laughs> yeah, um, in, in his robes. Um, no, I mean. There's a couple of things that interest me in that. One is obviously, you know, I mentioned the Church of Scotland earlier. So, I mean, SOLAS, mm. the organisation I work for uh, and lead, was founded by a guy called David Robertson, you know, years yeah. ago before David had handed it on to myself and the new team. And one of the interesting things is David used to get a lot of criticism over the years because he took the same position that you describe um, there with regards to evangelicals uh, in the Church of Scotland. He, you know, has written and published for years, arguing they should come out and cause quite a furore. Yeah. And uh, because there are lots of evangelicals who believe they should be, you know, in it to win it. Um, mm. With what's just happened on sexuality, you know, David is now sort of loudly saying, look, I was right. Because, you know, evangelicals had said to him, look, if we stay here, we can, we can keep, we can steady the ship, we can keep her steady. And David's critique now would be, well, what good have you done? Because actually things have slid and they're going to slide yeah. potentially yeah. even more. Now, don't hear me wrong, people listening to this. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not so arguing for David's position, but I am saying I think, I think the challenge for those in the in its to win it camp has been, okay, are you actually making a difference? Which leads me to an observation. Actually, I remember somebody saying to me once they felt one of the reasons why evangelicals have been quite ineffective. Uh, holding the slide in denominations like you know, like, like the mainline ones, the Methodists, the mm. Anglicans, the, 
the Church of Scotland, the list goes on, is because as evangelicals, we're activists. So we like to be out yeah. doing mission. We like to be out starting orphanages and feeding the poor and doing all that gospel stuff. We're at, give us a project. We love to do it. We're not very good. We naturally lean away from politics and committees. It's like, you know, evangelicals yeah. tend to go, ah, it's a group of blokes talking in a room. You know, we're going to be out here doing the work. What that allowed to do was then, of course, that allowed liberals to come in and, you know, monopolize all of those committees. Mm-hmm. So you've got the strange position that you have in, say, the Anglican Church, where most of the mission is done by evangelicals. The largest churches are all evangelicals because they're the activists, but all the structures of power are largely, you know, the levers are yanked around by liberals. And maybe yeah. the challenges in those denominations, if, if by God's grace they are still salvageable, it needs evangelicals to go, you know what, I may struggle with committee meetings, but we've got to get into those committees. We've got to be willing mm. to do that committee work. And, you know, we need to be praying for God to raise up lead- evangelical leaders who love admin and boards and committees. Otherwise, you just leave them to the liberals. It's interesting, though, because you think like some of the great, most of the great evangelical leaders who started movements, it, like, they are leaders and pioneers because they don't believe committees are the way to mm. do mission. And I know that, of course, you do need good governance and organization, but like you, you want that kind of pioneering spirit, the sort of risk taking and leadership, which is which is sometimes requiring require, decision making, which you know, this kind of very boring policy led functionary organizations don't really allow you to do so it's almost always the case that an amazing pulsating mission movement becomes tied up in bureaucracy eventually because they try to maintain things and then people Mm. come in who are not really well suited to decisive leadership who are then making the calls and suddenly they have tremendous power but they were just good at working their way up through the committees and that's not particularly and there's nothing really obviously good missionally about that other than the fact that yeah i think you agree though andy that when we're in that situation you can't always just go I'll just leave them to it then and, and, let, and let things happen because it might be that, and you know, people listening to this might think, right, I might be in a, I'm in a situation where I have to make a choice. Do I stay or do I go uh, whether in a particular local church or in a, in a denomination? And it might be that it comes down to calling. It comes down to individual calling. You know, we do need yeah. to step back and go at one time I might've been quicker to go. Don't even bother joining uh, the Anglican church because it's just going in a direction. I can sort of, and I, I really resonate with Lloyd Jones's call. Just like, look, we need evangelical unity. We need people who are just committed to the gospel all the way down, committed to the authority of scripture all the way down, not just when it suits us. I really That's resonate great. with that. But at the same time, I see, you know, when you meet Anglicans, like the ones I met recently on, on this football team, I was, I was there as a player chaplain. That was my caveat. So as the non-Anglican on the team, but it was really interesting chatting to them and just hearing their different experiences and the things they're going through. And, and so many of them are are wanting to just do good ministry where they are. They want to bring the gospel where they are. And for them, the Anglican church structure enables them to do that. For others are more committed to the overall sense of the Church of England, and that helps them in other ways. So they try to reform it from the inside. There's, it's, it, you, sometimes it comes down to whether God has given you faith for a yes. something in this generation. Is there enough advantage to what your calling can be fulfilled or not mm. in the structures you're in? Or yeah. are the structures actively hindering you're calling are they actively hindering your fruitfulness for the lord mm. if that's the case you've got to think of you know, really seriously about where you can be fruitful for god and where, where he might be yeah. calling you next that might i think that's nice. i think that's really helpful and of course the, the, the biblical example that, that popped into my mind as you were describing that is of course you know you look at look at elijah you know when he's you know after he's had that great mountaintop experience quite literally and then goes off and he's in the cave and he's all depressed because israel is a nightmare 
and uh, and actually God gives him a gentle kick up the posterior, and it's like, well, there are enough out here actually who haven't bowed the knee to bowl, and uh, you've got a job to do, and you've got a calling to do. Get out there and get on with it. And so if, but I think what I like about what you've said there, that brings it down to what the Lord has called you to do. And in some senses, I this is one of these episodes where I wish there was a clear answer. I don't think there is because I think it has to be a spirit-led answer. There'll be some who who I think need to get out and and not just hang on to the fact I've always been here, so I should stay. Mm-hmm. The others God is calling to remain. There's also middle grounds, actually, because interestingly, you know, because we've moved house recently, we're now looking around at churches. Um, one of the churches we're considering is a really you know, nice, really missional, you know, Anglican plant in, in Swindon out of HTB and uh, it's a, doing some amazing stuff. But I'm also conscious we live in a village three miles down the road where there's a slightly sort of ropier Mm. um sort of uh local church but we're leaning in towards well maybe actually what we need to be doing we're praying through if this is right is to go to the church up the road where there's lots of missional stuff happening but maybe once a month or whatever stick our heads into this thing in the village so we're there we start making connections it won't be our home church but it might be a place where we can still be involved mm. and who knows how the lord can use us but the mm. thought i want to land with and we've got about kind of five or six minutes to go before we, we we've run completely out of time and i'm very struck by something you said a few moments ago you were talking about different bible passages and you quoted john and so forth but you talked about philippians and mm. philippians 2 which says so much about about unity and dwelling together in harmony but i love where paul centers it around around christ i mean there's that amazing christological hymn in verses 5 through 11 which yeah. makes christ the center yeah and ultimately i think that's the big criterion isn't it that's going if somebody if somebody can bow the knee and say jesus is lord and mean it wholeheartedly confess it with their mouth and believe it with their heart then there's something we can work with the challenge becomes when even that begins to slide and i want to sort of take us back perhaps to the story you started with because you talked mm. about the the cliff festival and that panel you were in and perhaps without mentioning yeah. the name you did say you told me a story before we began recording about mm. the fact the lordship of christ had come up yeah. as a discussion point do you want to sort of share that? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Happy a to. great thing to center our landing point around. Yeah, I think so. Um, basically, one of the the, the chair of the um, discussions for the first started out by saying, you know, we're going to get on to discussing what we disagree on and how we get over that, which is how the other stuff came up. But what can we agree on? Where can we at least let's start with agreement? What do all Christians need to agree on? And someone first said, um, God is faithful. And everyone's like, yeah, we could all agree on that. But, you know, in my head, I'm like, well, yes. But, I mean, what does that mean? God is faithful in what respect? Um, Fine. But I do believe God in his character is faithful. We can all agree with that. He doesn't lie, for example, or let us down. But then the person, actually, I mentioned earlier, the person who is, you know, very, very much very prominent and active in the LGBT community um, said, well, Jesus is Lord. Is that not surely that's obvious one we should all agree on? And based on another person on the panel who'd introduced themselves earlier, I said, I don't think this person could agree with Jesus as Lord. Can I just quiz whether you do or not? Because you talked about interfaith stuff earlier and you were talking about working with other faiths, how much, how important it is for us to be humble and literally almost not quite quoting Philippians 2, but thinking, we need to be Christians, we need to be humble. So we don't know everything. Therefore, when we talk to someone of another religion, um, they've got an apprehension of God that we don't have. They could teach us something about God because they've had an experience of God, um, according to her. And so I, I said, so does that, do you believe in Jesus as Lord? And so, well, actually, yeah, I was going to say, um, 
I don't think that language is appropriate. I was like, okay, interesting. And then, so I've got these other people on the panel who I disagree with on loads of other things, kind of like, oh, I thought we all agreed Jesus is Lord. Um, but it's obvious that you can't say Jesus is Lord. I knew that that was the case, would be the case when she opened up, because you you can't go to someone of another religion and say Jesus is Lord. It's very offensive. If you believe that offensiveness is what you want to avoid at all costs, you can't say Jesus is Lord. Um, but, you know, we, so we got, got into it and she said, I want to avoid kind of medieval language like that. And then when I quizzed her, I said, well, not medieval language, just biblical language. You know, going a bit further back. Um, and then the response was, um, well, that's even worse. But by what she meant, it's that's the ancient world. And she was at the ancient world. So it's even further back. I was like, OK. So really what you get into with some forms of liberalism are, are just so beyond the pale because they're sort of just like, well, I, you know, I basically whatever's newer is truer. Whatever the latest thing is, is the most likely to be true. And then further back you go in time, the chronological snobbery thing that C.S. Lewis talks about, Owen Barfield, um, that, you know, the, the, the older ideas are clearly going to be less likely to be true. And I think this was just bizarre because you've got the Bible is in the ancient world. So you can't just, what, what does that mean? You just write off the Bible. But then we didn't really have time to explore. It was only a short panel. And I, I was conscious, as always, as you may it may know I like to talk too much. Um, yes. it, you're probably going to cut me off in a moment. But I, um, if I'd had more time to explore, I would have said, why on earth are we sitting here in the north of England in a Bible college? Why did a Christian college get planted here in England? It's miles away from Jerusalem uh, where this whole thing started. It's because we had missionaries who believed that Jesus is Lord and they really believed it. They had conviction and they went to their, they gave their whole life to it. They gave their death to it as it were as well and martyrdom. They, they really went to people that it was really hard to go to. Um, and so that's how you end up with mission going around the world because people really believe that Jesus is Lord. And that does mean Baal is not Lord. The Asherah uh, are not Lord. It, it does. It, it means that, you know, Muhammad and or Allah as, as known is not Lord. And you need to be able to confront um, other religions and other, other belief systems, which, which come yeah. against the fact that Jesus is Lord or indeed Caesar is not Lord. And so these things are really, really important. And I think the danger is when we talk about Christian unity, we usually proof text a couple of things that Jesus says, like, Yes, I pray, Father, that they may all be one and that they may be known as one in the world. Well, you know, that we just take that out of its context entirely. Well, while we have a go at evangelicals for taking verses out of context, apparently, on sexuality or something, and say, oh, no, it's very much more complicated. But mm. apparently John 17 is really straightforward, and you can just quote <laughs> yeah. it and say, everyone needs to be unified and not really worry about the differences. Like, no, sorry, he's Jesus. We need to believe who he is before we start saying what we believe or that, he, that what he said. So if he's not Lord, then that we really need to have another conversation entirely. So we need to really understand that as the guarantor of unity. And from that, what does that mean for your sexuality, for the way you approach the church, for the way you approach ministry? It means that Jesus' Lordship has to extend over every area of your life. And maybe even some would say, listening to this, who, who say actually it should extend and beyond the borders of the church, we need to proclaim his lordship in the world. And there's all sorts of interesting stuff we could say about that. Perhaps we'll save for another time. Yeah. Well, that's a great point to uh, to, to bring it to an end. Um, so much more could be said there, but I think you've summed it up. Uh, you've summed it up well. And as you say, I think I think the natural extension of that actually is if you're not careful, you slide from scripture, you slide to the lordship of Christ, and actually then you slide into functional atheism. Mm. Um, because that'd be my challenge to your, your friend at that panel of going, well, let's throw everything out. And in fact, actually, you know, why even be part of the Methodist church at that point? Why not start something totally, totally new? Um, mm. Because obviously if 
God is God, then speaking through scripture or stepping into history in the incarnation um, is not a problem at all. But if you don't really believe there's a God behind this universe and it's all the human construction anyway, then obviously you end up in that position. Anyway, on that bombshell, um, it is time to leave before I get evicted from the temporary office I'm recording this episode in. And the four a barber comes knocking on the door, offering to shave off. That hey, I might get evicted from my non-temporary office as well. You know, you might as well, you know, get more controversial. Anyway, I've been Andy Bannister. He's been Aaron Edwards. This has been part of the gaps. We are still united with not too many contradictions at the end of this show. And uh, we look forward to uh, uh, you joining us in a few weeks' time, two weeks' time, whenever we get around to doing another one on one of the biggest issues of the day. Thank you.